morning, as Jeff said, my name is Bill, Bill Drips. I'm one of the elders here at Grace Fellowship Church, and I'm delighted you're here this morning. It would be a pretty lonely service otherwise. <laughs> We're going to be talking uh, more about marriage today. We're on the second of three sermons. I've titled this one, The Final Marriage. <clears throat> Our main point is though there are many models for marriage and other relationships, Christ and the church is the final one. And uh, although uh, Christ came a couple of thousand years ago, uh, yet the, the relationship between him and the church is still the model we go by. And if you read the book of Revelations, you realize that model continues through the book of Revelation. So we're going to look at how Christ and the church models marriage for us. One of the things that uh, perhaps we don't totally realize all the time is that there's nothing that Paul says about marriage in, in these passages that's not also applicable to other relationships. And there's not nothing that he says about relationships between people in general that's not applicable to marriage. So whether or not you're married, this passage actually applies to your relationships. Um, many times people uh, speak about marriage as something that is is different than anything else that happens in life. And uh, certainly I have to say that my marriage to Bonnie has been the best thing that ever happened to me outside of the Lord's coming. Um, and I certainly hope that, that that's the same for all of you who are married. Not with Bonnie, of course, but, you know. Um, but it is interesting how people compartmentalize things. I was uh, leading a men's retreat once and, and speaking out of this passage and uh, particularly the the relationship between men and women. And the pastor just, just stopped me, said, you know, Bill, a couple of, you know, a couple of thousand years ago, this may have been really applicable, but people today live in a world where they have women bosses and all of this stuff going on. And I'm like, oh my goodness, you missed something there, pastor. <laughs> but um, I just wanted to make that point. Christ in the church is the final one and it's applicable to all relationships. I wanted to review what we said last week, and that's basically that marriage is to be in God's image. In Genesis 1 through 3, we saw last week that God designed both us and marriage to be in his image. This is true for all our relationships, not just marriage. There are many models for marriage in this world. Many times we hear people rejecting marriage. We hear people very down on marriage. Okay, let me just say right up front, I've seen many marriages that I want no part of. Right? Marriage is not a universal good. It will not fix all the problems in your life. <clears throat> there are many models for marriage out there that are awful. There is one model that is guaranteed to be good, and that's God's image. We saw that uh, that God levied the, the penalty of death on man for his sin. 
And some may feel that the death penalty for sin was harsh. And let's face it, it is. And that's because it needed to be. But the way that God did it was redemptive. And one of the things we forget about is that when he leveled that death penalty, who did he know that was going to fall on? Yes, his beloved son. So he, at the time he leveled it, his plan was to pay that penalty himself. And that's just breathtaking. So all of this is good, but it's a little abstract and remote. It's hard to feel all that close to a being that encompasses the whole cosmos and his every thought. <laughs> um, you know, what does he look like? Um, how do you say hi to him? Hi, God. If this was the only passage we had as a model, it would be missing a lot of pieces. So we want to go to point two in the outline, New Testament times, and see where some of the missing pieces are and begin to look at uh, the model that we have of Jesus in the church. And I'm going to read uh, uh, Ephesians 5, 1 through 21. Normally when we're talking about marriage, we don't read all of Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 5 anyway. And so I wanted to read all of this and give you some thoughts as to why this is what precedes Paul's comments on marriage. So Ephesians 5, verses 1 through 21. Therefore be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness but not even be named among you as is proper among saints. Let there be no filthiness nor foolish talk nor crude joking which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of God, the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore do not become partners with them, for at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light, for the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true, and try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them, for it is shameful even to speak of the things they do in secret. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore it says, Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise but as wise, making the best use of the time, because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence to Christ. So, why in the world does Paul hammer on sin at this point? 
one of the comments that you I've heard people make many times is, you know, it kind of reads like uh, today's newspaper. And, and you know, you, you go downtown on Saturday night and you think, oh, yeah, sure, there it is right there. <clears throat> Let me give you some background on this. Actually, what Paul was responding to was the Roman society, and by that I know that Rome is in Rome, and he's actually more in the eastern part of the empire. But it, I'll just call it all Roman, okay, because they were the big bosses. What Paul is describing here is what he sees going on in Roman society around him. And the things that he was seeing are, to, are things that today we would find unbelievable in any civilized people. And if you just hear me call the Romans barbarians, you are right. I mean, that's, that's where they were. I mean, how in the world can you celebrate and having a good time while watching people kill each other right before your eyes? I mean, this, <laughs> that's insane, right? Is that entertainment? In New Testament times, Romans treated their wives terribly and their slaves worse. You think I'm kidding? Forced abortion was common. Think about it. No anesthetic. No antibiotics. Yeah. Ouch. Female infanticide was also common. It was so common that it was not generally remarkable. There's a letter from an otherwise respectable Roman gentleman away on a business trip who wrote home and told his wife, delighted to hear that you're having a baby if it's a girl, dispose of it. And then he goes on to talk about more important things. How would you like to be under obligation to murder your infants, your baby? This this is a crazy, out-of-control society. There are archaeological digs where they have dug up the sewers of Roman villas and discovered hundreds of female infants or skeletons. It's mind-boggling. It is truly mind-boggling. By by counting graves and other things, other ways to try to estimate the populations, it's estimated that women were only one-third of the population in the Roman Empire. That means there were two men for every woman. Now listen, that does not happen. That is not a natural occurrence. These people were nuts. Their marriages were all about power and domination, um, you, you would think that you would want a family at least even to have an, have an heir. And you know what? That was not the way Romans got heirs. A child was not your heir until you proclaimed him your heir. And because you wanted someone to carry on your great name, what you did was you waited until you thought death might be coming and you, you found someone who as an adult embodied all that you wanted as your heir. And you adopted him. Who needs kids, right? This was, and I I can go on. There's more. I mean, but we got to (laughs) go. This is a society that revered power and place above all else. Just so you know for sure, Christ's teachings were diametrically opposed to that. 
he advocated servanthood. Now, l- listen to this and picture this coming, this kind of teaching coming out in this society in which power and place are everything. But Jesus called to them and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. That's Matthew twenty twenty-five through 28. He was speaking to men whom later authors would call the princes of the church. <laughs> I, how, I, it's, it's kind of funny. But how do you think the Lord would respond to people calling his apostles princes of the church? Yeah, probably not real well. He, he called upon even those whom he entrusted his kingdom to, to be servants. He said he came as a servant and they were to be servants. Kind of a little bit different. And, and what I'm trying to point out here is how, even though the world's model is power and authority, that is not what Christ is talking about. It's not that he lacks power and authority. How much power and authority does Christ have? And he's got it all. But that is not what he's leading with. Christ's model is servanthood and living for others. This is not man-pleasing. It's love which is doing what's best for others, not pleasing them. And then another uh, quote from uh, from King Jesus out of Luke 14, 7 through 11. Now he told them a parable to those who were invited when he noticed how they chose the places of honor and saying to them, when you're invited by someone to a wedding feast, do not sit down in a place of honor lest someone more distinguished than you be invited by him. And he invited And he who invited you both will come and say to you, give your place to this person. And then you will begin with shame to take the lowest place. But when you are invited, go and sit in the lowest place, so that when your host comes, he may say to you, friend, move higher up. Then you will be honored in the presence of all who sit at table with you. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Our ambition ought to be to love and to serve rather than to rule and reign. And one thing that I think is really helpful to bear in mind here is that our true audience is not the world around us. It's the Lord. And when when we think about our place in the world, don't think about what other people think. Think about what the Lord thinks. So this is a completely different model of human life than the prevailing one, and it would be difficult to overemphasize this point. Romans valued power over others. Christ valued service and love for others. Things are much the same in our day. The model's a little different. Our culture values self-satisfaction above all else. Christ still values love and service to others. You know, I, I'm, I'm really not so sure things have changed so much in the couple of thousand years since Christ. You know, I think it's entirely possible that compared to the Romans that we live in a culture that um, actually values good things more than them. Wouldn't try to prove it, but uh, don't want to go live there either. 
So let's talk about this New Testament model that's Jesus and the church. And let me start by reading uh, Romans, continuing on in Ephesians, Ephesians 5, 22 through 24. And I'll also read the second part of verse 33b, since it also speaks to the wife. Wives, submit to your husband, your own husbands, as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should be should submit in everything to their husbands. And let the wife see that she respects her husband. Okay, so now it's time to get all upset about the uh, submission word, right? You can start throwing the ripe fruit and whatever. What should you do if you have a mean boss? What should you do if you have an unfair boss? Should you throw up your hands in anger, screaming bloody murder, and stomp out? What is the What does the New Testament say? How slaves are to respond to to bad masters? They are to suffer as those suffering for Christ, right? In other words, Paul tells slaves to be submissive to masters. Jesus tells us to be submitted to everyone in all situations, good, bad, and ugly. So what he's saying here about wives being submitted to their own husband is actually not any different than what he calls all of us to do all the time. <clears throat> now, here's here's a... Uh, why. So why does a wife submit to her husband. It's as to the Lord. It's part of her submission to Christ. That's why she submits. What's the one problem with all sinners? Now, of course, um, when you're, when you're uh, first in love, you don't, you don't really notice that that guy that you plan to marry is actually a sinner. But I can assure you that all husbands are sinners just like all wives are. If a wife, if a woman seeks a husband worthy of her submission, she will inevitably be disappointed. Because none of us are. If she seeks to honor Christ in her submission, the Lord promises that he will bless her for that. Wives are not called to be doormats. They partake of they, they partake of salvation directly from Christ, just like their husbands. These things about submission should be true of every relationship, not just marriage. Submission is an essential part of every relationship. In other words, say you work on a construction crew. I worked on a construction crew once building houses, and we had a foreman. And he said, Bill, go do this. Bill, go do that. You know what? And I just went and did it. I didn't put up a big fight. Now, actually, this guy was a bit of a jerk. <laughs> he really was, actually. He used foul language all the time. He delighted in telling raunchy stories. Um, you know, I would never have chosen him as a boon companion. But you know what? I submitted to him, and I didn't complain about it, and I happily took my money at the end of the week. Other examples. Some of you have had professors that are not exactly fair, right? Has that ever happened? 
<laughs> yeah, but everybody can give you good examples. And these days, these days, they put you in groups and give you a group grade. And you have to carry the load of everybody in the group. Now that is totally not fair, right? Why don't we form a union and all, get all the undergrads together and rebel? What I'm saying is that submission to, to is, is a key part of our getting along. It's not just a key part. It's essential in our relationship with God. And when we haven't learned godly submission, it's not just our marriages that are going to fail. It's everything. So the wife should submit and respect to her husband. So that lets the husbands off easy, right? Let's go on to Ephesians in Ephesians 5 to verses 25 through 33a. And Paul says, Husbands, love your wife as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he may present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church. Because we are members of his body, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying it refers to the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself. Husbands are called to be like Jesus. I don't know how you feel about that. I feel like that's kind of like the impossible dream, right? I feel like I'm out there, I'm Don Quixote with my lance, going to charge some windmills. I mean, this is just... Okay, but that is what the Lord calls me to do. Now, how do I love my wife? I am to give myself up for her. Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. That means when hard things come along, whose job is it? Well, right. I mean, that's her job, right? Uh, actually, not. One of the things that, uh, that Christ wants us to do, and this is what he does with the church, is he gives himself up for her. He also builds her up with God's word. <clears throat> and this applies not just to husbands, it applies to anybody that's in any kind of a leadership position. You should be building up the people around you with God's word. There's a real basis uh, for husbands leading their wives in this way. He's to build her up to be spotless and pure. That means if your wife is fouling up, Whose problem is it? It's your problem. Right. And what you need to be saying to yourself when you see her doing what you think is not the right thing is, okay, how did I mess up here? What's my part of this? What do I need to do to fix this? What, what would you say if you appeared before the Lord 
and he and he and he said to you, you know, there's a real problem here, and it's you. What would you say? <laughs> and yet, how many how many of us think that way in our relationships, and we try to figure out how to blame the other person? Husbands like to blame their wives. Instead, we are to nourish her and cherish her. So one thing I want to say about this is any husband, any man who would take this passage to mean that he can boss his wife around or abuse her in any way has just grossly misinterpreted God's word. And I have heard people teach it that way. Let me say another little thing here too. Any man who would not just take this passage, who actually would boss his wife around or abuse her in any way, deserves to be horsewhipped. These things are true, and I've said this before, these things are true of every relationship, not just marriage. So we're looking at Christ's model of how he related to the church and using that as a model for us in terms of our marriages. Uh, wives need to submit to and respect their husbands. Uh, husbands need to love and lead your wife. So what are some of the things that we could do in terms of applying Christ's model to our marriages? You know, uh, this is this is kind of a, an illustration from computer programming. Sometimes people write computer programs and then they think, well, this is really good, but you know, it could do this over here too. So they add this little thing over here. And then they think, well, boy, that worked that good. Well, let's add this other thing over here. And, uh, you know, that made it even better. Well, let's add three, four, five, and six. And what happens? After a while, it becomes a mess. You can't find your way around in it. It's like somebody took a house and kept adding on rooms until they built Windsor Castle, you know? Have you ever seen a picture of the place? It's like how anybody could find their way around in that. And what they needed, what they need to do is with a computer program or with, I mean, they can leave Windsor Castle alone, I guess it would. But um, what they need to do with that computer program is rebase it. Right? That's what they call it. Sometimes they call it uh, uh, reformulated or, or a lot of different terms. But uh, that's what we need to do with our relationship is start over and and say, okay, if I were going to do this thing exactly the way it should be done, what changes would I make? And you don't have to do them all overnight. But we need to consistently be thinking about all of our relationships, including our marriage, and how we can rebase them on Christ's example. For, for you men... And also this applies to, to all of us when we're in any, um, any relationship. Nowhere in scripture are husbands told to dominate their wives. Maybe that's a good thing for uh, most of us to think about. How and in our lives are we dominating our wives? And it's not just our wives, it's all of our relationships. And when do we find ourselves acting in a dominating way? We need to consider that the Bible condemns pride and dominance and calls for love and respect. The biblical viewpoint is that the first will be last and the last first. 
pride and dominance is trying to be first. Love and respect show a willingness to be last. I have to say, when I think about uh, putting putting uh, others first and letting myself be last, it's a lot easier to think of examples where other people have done that. But there definitely have there's definitely times where I need to think about that. Husbands are to love their wives as Christ loved the church, and conversely, wives should respect their husbands. There's a, a course that the name of it is uh, Love and Respect. And it's about marriage. And uh, I've often thought that uh, that course would be really great um, for, for all relationships. So where have we been? We've, we've looked at Genesis and seen God's image being the original model for marriage. We've looked at New Testament times, and I've told you a little bit about Roman culture. Uh, let me let me tell you a little bit more. You've heard of Mount Vesuvius, right? And you've heard that that blew up. And you've heard that the giant ash cloud came down and destroyed Pompeii. There's also another Roman city that uh, until that has not been as well known, but it's uh, it's uh, Herculeum. And that one also got uh, destroyed. And um, one of the things that they were shocked to find as they dug these places up, you know, most ruins, when, when they dig them up, they've actually been severely weathered. Um, and they... Uh, um, so that they don't often get the original paint on the wall and that sort of thing. What these places they did, and what they found, is that these were a couple of the most pornographic cities in the world. And that they were evidently fairly normal in Roman times. The first people that actually discovered this didn't even put it in the journals. They were too shocked by what they found. It was so out of, out of sorts. And what they discovered as they looked into the into the records was that one of the main sources of revenue for the Roman Empire was a tax on prostitution. And that the Roman government, the Roman state, promoted prostitution to fund the government. Is it any wonder that Paul felt like he had to say, don't do that? That is the wrong way to go. And that the and and in our day, maybe we don't realize that things are so completely out of whack. But one of the things we need to do is to look at to what extent have we followed along in the model of marriage that's popular in our day, that many other people follow along with. And to what extent are we actually following Christ's example as he related to the church? So far, we've recognized the problem, which is that our original design has been broken by our rebellion. We're so grateful to God that he did not give up on us, but sent our son to restore us. He's done the heavy lifting, but he calls on us to cooperate with his cosmic rescue. Next week, we will look at some practical steps we can take to cooperate in that in the third and final sermon in this series, and it's called The Messy Marriage.
Let's pray. Father, we bow before you, and we praise you, and we thank you that you have given us a better way to live, that you have delivered us from our sin, that um, uh, these things that uh, that that you talked about in, in Romans really do give us a good model and a, and a good and a good pattern to follow. Father, give us wisdom and insight. Help us to understand where we need to change, uh, that you could be glorified in our lives. And we pray in your Son's name. Amen.